You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants here for the 10th Sunday after Holy Cross in the Byzantine lectionary. Also, uh, we're celebrating this Sunday the Feast of the Maternity of St. Anne, known in the Latin West as the Immaculate Conception, when St. Anne conceived Mary in her womb. Um, And the church gives us, there's really two themes, or well, one theme running through both of these feasts, and that is the theme of freedom, Uh, the freedom granted to St. Anne in her barrenness, uh, as the tradition tells us that she was uh, an old woman, unable to conceive, um, but miraculously, through the grace of God, um, became pregnant with the one who would become the mother of God. Um, uh, also, this theme of freedom for our, for our Sunday, the 10th Sunday after Holy Cross, during the Philip's fast as we prepare for the freedom granted in Christ uh, in the nativity of our Lord. So let's get the gospel text here in Luke chapter 13. And I encourage you to take out a pen and a notepad and write down for yourself these biblical texts. I hope these Bible studies we do are the beginning of your meditation for the coming Sunday. So write these texts down. Luke chapter 13, verse 10 through 17. That's Luke 13, verse 10 through 17. And the epistle this Sunday is taken from Galatians chapter 4, verse 22 through 27. Galatians 4, 22 through 27. So let's take a look at this gospel text in Luke chapter 13, verse 10 through 17. Let's get out our Bibles. Father Sebastian, you got your Bible there with you? There we go. Real honest to God book. Put the cell phones away. All right. At that time, Jesus was teaching in one of their synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent over and utterly unable to look upwards. When Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, thou art delivered from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands upon her, and instantly she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant that Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, addressed the crowd, saying, There are six days in which one ought to work. On these, therefore, come and be cured, and not on the Sabbath. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or ass from the manger and lead it forth to water? And this woman, daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound, lo, for eighteen years, ought not she to be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and the entire crowd rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. 
you know, Father Sebastian, there's, there's much to say about this text spiritually um, and, uh, and why it's given now during this preparation, uh, during the Philip's fast, um, and also during this feast of the maternity of St. Anne. Um, but first, I think I'd like to just focus our attention on uh, kind of what we normally do, which is the historical context. Uh, there's, there's, there's so much misunderstood, I think, today by the modern reader about the Jewish law, and particularly about the Sabbath law. So I'm wondering if you could kind of just dive into that um, and help us understand what exactly was this Sabbath law um, that seemed to impact their daily life so powerfully. Yes, the, the word Sabbath is a Hebrew word, which means rest. And any major holy day for Israel was a Sabbath, a day of rest. We always think of the Saturday Sabbath, but really the word Sabbath just simply means rest. And so, for example, the first and last day of a festival period was a Sabbath, regardless of what day, a Tuesday, Thursday, whatever day it fell on. So the, the first night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread called Passover was a Sabbath day. Whether it's a Tuesday, a Wednesday, Monday, it's a day of rest. And then the last day of that octave, that, that cycle, was also a day of rest. But then they, they had other feasts during throughout the, throughout the year. They had also a weekly feast in a certain sense, or a weekly special holy day. And that was Saturday, because that was the day on which the Lord created, uh, or at least had finished all of his creation, and he rested. And so, so then that was a special day for them. Every, every week they would remember to rest on that day, to remind themselves of what God has done in salvation history. And so the, in the first century, the keeping of the law was a major issue. Uh, it, of course, it was in the Old Testament. They're supposed to keep the law. But the Pharisees, who typically influenced the synagogue rulers and the synagogue system, the Pharisees interpreted all of the laws with a, an incredible degree of, of uh, strictness. So we know the story of when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. He, he says, take up your, you know, your pallet, your little cot, and go home. And then five Pharisees tackle him and ask him why he's carrying stuff on the Sabbath, right? And for us, we, this seems ridiculous. Even here, I mean, Jesus just healed a woman, and this man says such a thing? Well, the reason is because they believe that if sin, that is the breaking of the Torah, is what got them in the mess in the first place, then the keeping of the Torah perfectly is what would get them out of the situation they're in. They may have gone uh, to Babylon and come back. The exile is in a certain sense over geographically. But as we find in the Old Testament, as they return, there are major problems, and they know this. The exile is not really over until the Messiah appears and the kingdom of God is fully established. And so the Pharisees were trying to keep everyone from breaking any, any law of the Old Testament, of course, but they would do this by creating hedges around the law, in a certain sense, really tightening the uh, restrictions. So it says, don't, don't harvest your barley and wheat on the Sabbath. Well, don't even, don't even pluck some grain, right? And plucking grain and eating is not condemned by the, the law in the Old Testament on the Sabbath, but this was, they could see it as a, a slippery slope into breaking the actual law. In this particular case, we have this woman who is in bondage by Satan, as Jesus says. And Jesus points out that the synagogue ruler here has misunderstood 
the law that he is at this point trying to keep and enforce. And if you don't mind, if we could turn to uh, the Old Testament for a second, we can see specifically what Jesus is saying here. If we flip back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is the one of two places where we get the Ten Commandments. One is back in the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, and then the other place is here in Deuteronomy. The book of Exodus, we actually have two different tellings of the Ten Commandments as well, but the two different places in the Bible here. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Sabbath law is in verse 12. It says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It is set apart, distinct by resting on that day. The Lord your God commands you six days you shall do your labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. So that's as far as the, the synagogue ruler is, is enforcing the law. He sees Jesus is doing something. Again, this seems ridiculous to us, but you got to put yourself in the situation of the Pharisees in the first century. But then the law doesn't end there. It says, you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter or your manservant or your maidservant or your ox or your ass or any of your cattle or the sojourner who is within your gates that your maidservant and your, your manservant, your maidservant may rest as well as you. For you shall remember that you were a servant, a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out thence with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So Jesus has uh, laid his hands. It says he laid his hands upon her. Jesus reaches out his hand. He stretched forth his hand for this woman and saved her from her bondage. Just like Yahweh in the Old Testament reached out their hand and his hand stretched and brought Israel out of Egypt. And so here Jesus is doing what God did. And what this, this, what this is supposed to remind them of is God bringing them into the Sabbath rest, that is, the, the, uh, into the family of God and to experience that freedom in him. And so the, Jesus shows that the synagogue ruler has obviously misunderstood. The ass and the ox, you don't make them work on the Sabbath. But you do go out and give them water, right? You release them from their bondage, from their crib or from their leash, so you can go get them some water and food on the Sabbath. Shouldn't this poor woman, who is much more important than an ox or an ass, be freed from her bondage? I'm, I'm uh, as you're talking, just thinking a couple things about, you know, that, that really Jesus has come to restore the image and likeness of God in us. And, uh, and, 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 and looking back at this commandment, I think they're looking at it so often as we do from the outside. Like we look at church teachings oftentimes, oh, I have to do this thing because I know I have to do it. But really this is an invitation to a restoration of God's way of life as God led them out of bondage and gave them freedom as we have this kind of theme of freedom running through our text today. Um, so that's, that's really what they're supposed, what Jesus does on the Sabbath day for this woman is really what, what the whole Sabbath is all about anyways. You know, um, uh, I was thinking of, uh, I just flipped over here to John chapter 5. Uh, there's so many times it seems that, uh, that Luke uh, and, this, and the, the healings going on in Luke have a, almost a parallel, not that it's the same healing, but the same theme. And in, in, in John chapter 5, after uh, Jesus heals the paralytic on the Sabbath in Jerusalem, down in verse 17, 
uh, says, my father is working still and I am working. Uh, very interesting. There's a type of work, it seems like. There's a type of work which is called for on the Sabbath. You know, and if we go back to, um, uh, to, to Genesis, and I'd like to do that in just a minute, maybe to take, look at this in a broader picture, but to go back to Genesis, what, what does God do on the Sabbath? But he blesses. There is something which God does do on the Sabbath. There's a type of work which is called for, if you want to call it work, that Jesus calls it work in John chapter 5, right? There's a type of work, and that is this restoration of the image and likeness of God who gives life. Uh, and that's exactly what Jesus has come to do and calling us then to uh, be remade in his image and likeness. We're given this text, of course, on this feast um, in which, well, this Sunday in which we, we remember this woman who is released from her own bondage as, as kind of almost as a type, I guess, a type of Israel uh, in the Old Testament who's released from the slave from slavery. So almost in their midst is given this, incarnation of this very physical representation of of what god had done for them before so that they can begin to live that life but also now on this feast of saint anne and the maternity of saint anne who was who was barren and the fathers of the church of course see her very much representing the old testament church the people of god who were in bondage to the evil one awaiting the coming of christ um, and here, St. Anne receives that gift of life in, in, in view of, in preparation for what Christ is about to do. Um, and, you know, I think it's important for us, fathers, we, uh, just before we move on to the epistle, just to remember that, that what Jesus does here for this woman, what he does for St. Anne, is uh, not, not arbitrary in any way but very much not only tied to what God did for, for, for his people in Egypt, but very much tied for what God is doing for his people in salvation history, um, that he has come to solve this particular problem of the barrenness of the world and ultimately the bondage that, that the evil one has imposed upon us. Um, and we're given this by, I think, by the, 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 the wisdom of the church and the grace of God, the Treparian in the fourth tone, which says, The women disciples of the Lord have learned from the angel the joyful announcement of the resurrection, and having rejected the ancestral sentence, having rejected the ancestral sentence. So Jesus' whole resurrection is placed in terms of the problem, which is, which is the way we always need to look at what Christ is doing, right? He comes to this woman who's bowed down, by the evil one, uh, ultimately because of the fall of the, our first parents. And Jesus comes to reject this, this bondage, to break the, the, the power of the evil one over us. And, um, and it's that, I think it's, it's that context which is so important that we're looking at, we'll keep in front of us as we celebrate this Feast of the Maternity of St. Anne and this Sunday in preparation for the Nativity of Christ, to always remember he's coming for a purpose. He's not... It's not arbitrary. He's walking around. He's doing this miracle, that miracle. He's come to, to literally lift us up. You know, St. Athanasius uses this example in his work on the incarnation. He says that man has become, through the sin of our first parents, has become like bowed down by our sins and by the concerns of this world. So Jesus is born 
in the feeding trough of the animals because we've become like the animals, just burdened. He's been born in that feeding trough. So we who are looking down and unable to see the higher things will find God himself, who will then in the resurrection raise us up so that we can again behold heavenly things. Uh, Plato says the same, uses the same analogy in, the, in his, his Republic. So we have this image now in preparation for the nativity during this time of the Phillips fast of what Jesus is going to do for us. If only we would allow ourselves to look upon him, only allow ourselves to come to that place and, uh, and be able to see him for who he is. So with that, with that background, that context, let's look at uh, the epistle, which is written to the Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter four, Galatians chapter four, uh, verse 22, Galatians 4, verse 22. Again, I encourage you guys, if you're not flipping your Bibles open with us and, and making use of this opportunity, uh, but you're just listening, first of all, it's good to just listen, but I encourage you, you know, part of this exercise together is becoming familiar with our Bibles, knowing where Galatians is, how to get there easily, knowing how to turn back to Deuteronomy, uh, and this text in Galatians gives us another kind of uh, helpful um, uh, uh, say practice of this in a second here is we're going to need to look to the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through promise. Now, this is an allegory. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery and with her children. But the, but, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in travail. For the children of the desolate one are many more than the children of her that is married. Father Sebastian, I can't, I don't think I can come up with a better example of a more confusing text to, to most <laughs> modern readers. First of all, you have to have basic knowledge of the Old Testament to know who Hagar was. Uh, you have to slow down and read this text very carefully because, geez, I thought Jerusalem, uh, I thought Mount Sinai was a good thing, but it's here it's, it's put in terms of very negative, you know, slavery and so forth. There's all sorts of confusing text here that we got to unpack. But before you say that, I just encourage our, our listeners on good Bible practices. Number one, you have to slow down, which is why this study that we do every, every week is hopefully just a beginning. Slow down. And then you have to be able to start identifying the people that are used and the images that are used and begin to meditate upon those. So you got to go back to Genesis to find Hagar. Uh, here we've got a quotation from the Old Testament. Where is this coming from? It's coming from given to us from the book of Isaiah, but St. Paul does not say that. Um, and uh, we got to get in that practice of slowing down and really kind of trying to draw stuff out of this text. Okay, so Father, please help us understand the context given here first not the not the quote from isaiah but first in galatians what's saint paul talking about 
Yeah, this is uh, definitely, like you said, a confusing text. You kind of got to slow down and read it once or twice, maybe three times, and see what he's doing, especially because he's not just talking about the Old Testament, but he's using it as an allegory for the new. And he's telling you that the Jerusalem that we know of is not the Jerusalem there, but a different Jerusalem. All right, so basically, in a nutshell, the book of the epistle to the Galatians is Paul showing the churches of Galatia, which were those churches he founded on his first missionary journey that there was no need for them who were Gentiles who'd come to the church and been baptized. There was no need for them to be trying to keep the old law. That is circumcision and the kosher laws and the rest of it. There was no need for that. The, um, because Christ had already fulfilled all of those things. And we who are baptized into Christ, as he says in chapter three, verse 27 of this epistle are no longer slave nor free male or female Jew or Gentile, we're all one in Christ. And so that's the, the main thrust of the epistles. You have an audience which is confused about the relevance of the old law, circumcision, kosher laws, things like that. Paul's saying there is no need to worry about any of that anymore. And he uses this, this image of slavery versus freedom, of Hagar versus Sarah, because he's trying to show here that that we are children of Abraham by virtue of our baptism. And the, uh, this, this was a question for those who were interested in the old law. How do we become children of the blessing, children of the blessing of Abraham? God promised that through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And so are we, are we children of Abraham? Have we been blessed through Abraham? Is, is God blessing us? Are we really part of the Abrahamic covenant? If we haven't been circumcised and been kept kosher, this is that problem in the first century. So Paul shows, he says, look, the, this is, there are two covenants. There's the old covenant and the new covenant. And while there is a similarity, they are two different covenants. And they are different, though they're similar, God making a covenant of man. That's about as far as it goes. They're, they're very, very different. And they're as different as a slave versus a free woman. And he says, so he uses the example of Hagar and Sarah, because these are the two women through whom Abraham had children, right? Offspring, offspring of Abraham, children of Abraham. So that's the question for the people at the time. Are we really children of Abraham? And he says, Abraham had different types of children. He had different types of wives. Hagar was a slave. And he says, this is what Sinai is. The old covenant is like slavery. The God gave the law. He said, this is what you shall do, and this is what you shall not do. But the, they had no freedom to actually keep that law. They didn't have the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to actually be able to walk in the ways of the Lord. God says, this is my way. Now keep my way. But they weren't able to do that. And they fell and stumbled constantly, though there was a rule that, that God had given them for their good. They could not keep it. They were under, it's like as if they were under this bondage, this yoke, and they couldn't get out of it. But Jesus has come and freed us from that so that the, in the new law, that is through Jesus Christ, in the new covenant, we're actually able to do what God told them to do. And we're not talking about not eating bacon and the various you know, subtleties of the Old Testament law. It's the principle of the law. The law is summarized in this, love God and your neighbors yourself. And they couldn't do that in the Old Covenant. God told them to do that, but they couldn't. 
But in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by virtue of our baptism, we are able, we're actually enabled to do what the old law was actually intended to do. And that is to love God and our neighbors ourselves, who is made in the image and likeness of the Lord. Yeah, it seems to me that we can make a distinction between like freedom from and freedom for. That while, while the Old Testament peoples were given this freedom from physical bondage, they were never able to kind of come to life in the freedom for, like the purpose of what that physical freedom was all about. Um, and, and here Christ has come to give us this thing. And this image of the, bear, of the woman who's bowed down by, uh, by, by, by the bondage of, of sin and Anne, who is also barren, are these great images for us, really give us a tangible example of what it looks like to be under the bondage of the evil one. But then, then both with St. Anne and this woman, we see that freedom for, because immediately as this woman is freed from her, her physical bondage, uh, it doesn't just say that she was then able to walk straight, it says she's able to spiritually walk straight. The text says she glorified God. She suddenly, her, not only did Jesus come to straighten her body, but he came to straighten her, her spirit, to lift her up again, to see the things above. Uh, to, and then in that way, as St. Anne does, to become herself life-giving. The one who has come to give her life and free, uh, freeing her from her barrenness now she becomes remade in his image and likeness to be the one to give life. Um, and that's really that aspect of this, I think, this freedom forth. Father, this quotation is given to us here in Galatians. Rejoice, O Baranon, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in travail. For the children of the desolate one are many more than the children of her that is married. Okay, again, <laughs> thank you, St. Paul, for the most confusing quote I've ever heard in my life, number one. And number two, thank you, St. Paul, for saying, as it is written, but not telling us where in the world it was written. So uh, just a real practical thing, guys, when you got your Bibles out, sometimes the footnotes are not all that helpful, but when there's a quotation that says, as it is written, what you have to do is just follow your footnote down to the bottom of your page, and you're going to see the text is there from Isaiah. Now, if you're doing this Bible study on your own, as you should be, you want to go back and read that text, not only the verse, but the text in context, and then ask yourself all those questions that Father Sebastian is about to answer for us. When was Isaiah living? What's the context he's living in? So I can get that proper context, which St. Paul had, and then begin to understand how he properly applies it. So Father Sebastian, please just do that for us. Yeah, our, Isaiah is uh, a very large book, so one of the longest of the, of the Old Testament books. Isaiah can be divided into two parts. There's the first half, where Isaiah is telling them that a coming chastisement is very near. And that climax is in chapter 39, <clears throat> when he talks about the coming Babylonian exile. But in chapter 40, to the end of the book, so the second half of Isaiah, is primarily about the restoration that will come after the Babylonian exile. And he says, in the midst of this restoration, right about in the middle of the second half of this book, he says this beautiful statement that, that 
as we read here, rejoice, O barren one that does not bear. Right? Rejoice, barren one who has no children. Break forth and shout. So jump and dance. For thou, for you are, who were not in travail. So you who have been barren, you have been barren. Be happy for the barren one has more children than she who is barren. Who, she who has no husband, like you said. Very confusing. So what's he talking about? Well, if you go back in the context, Israel was the bride of God. Israel was God's wife in a certain sense and was intended to bring about fruitful, bring about uh, make, allowing God to be fruitful through them. They were to glorify God through, through the people that God called to him, Israel. They were to bear many children for him. What happened? We know what they did. They, rather than, uh, becoming the uh the conduit through which the entire world would come into the family of god they ended up needing to be recatechized themselves they fell back into idolatry of egypt etc and so while they did have children and while the people of israel grew slowly they eventually through their sin were cast off they broke the covenant with god having worshiped other gods they became they they committed covenantal adultery that is idolatry and so isaiah chapter one jeremiah and the rest of the prophets they talk about god casting off israel like god casts away an adulterous wife mm. who is now unable to bear she has no husband she's desolate and he says this is what israel was like in the exilic period they had become a woman who had been passed off by her husband and so they're in mourning because they are not able now to bear children. They're not able to do what God wanted them to do. But then Isaiah says, Oh, barren one who's been, who has no husband, you will be more fruitful than you'll be more fruitful than, than a, a woman who has a husband. What? How is that possible? Because Israel is going to now be brought back in, into that relationship in a new covenant, like a, almost like a new bride be brought back into a new covenant with God. And through that covenant, the, the God's people would now become the mother of an offspring like the sands, the sea, and, and the stars of the heavens. And he says, because this is what's happened. The, in the, in the uh, churches of Galatia, there are no longer simply descendants of Abraham genetically who are who are the children of Abraham. But now it is possible for all the nations, all the nations to come into the kingdom of God and become the children, the sons of the living God. And so the, in the second covenant, in this new covenant with this new bride, the new Israel in a certain sense, we will find Israel has become now, God's people become immeasurably more fruitful than what she was even at the high point of her old testament days of course this this text is so easily applied today uh to the feast of the uh, maternity or conception of saint anne um uh, because it is it's through um through the mother of god um and therefore through saint anne that this whole restoration is about to take place so the barren one has now become fruitful um, and, and then this text of Isaiah, this prophecy of Isaiah, 
is is now made made real and made present uh, in our midst. Of course, it's further applied to then this whole season in which we're living during the Phillips fast of preparation, and therefore uh, also to our own spiritual life. And I think maybe this is a a, a, a way a, a takeaway for us as we come to a conclusion here today that all of this all of this great mystery of God's life that is given to us through, um, uh, in, pro- by pr- in prophecy, through, Saint, through, through the prophet Isaiah, uh, looking forward to St. Anne, uh, th- through the mother of God to Christ himself, who is about to come and be present among us and to be, be, begin that restoration of, of, of life, of restoration of life-giving life, if you will. Um, uh, each one of us then, stands very much like today, like Israel in the Old Testament, awaiting intentionally in the spiritual life of the church, keeping the fast, awaiting the birth of the Savior. We relive again then this question of our reception of this gift. We have been baptized into him. In order to do this very thing that the church is talking about being the kind of the, the point of restoration, that the barrenness, barren one will now give life. Um, and we who are, who are living through the time of the fast, intentionally setting ourselves spiritually in preparation for the nativity during this time of barrenness, asking the Lord to make us fruitful again, uh, and to realize, to realize that he has done this very thing through our holy baptism, that in being uh, um, made one with him, that this restoration, which Isaiah looked forward to, has taken place in our life. So I ask those that are participating today, um, what is the meaning of your baptism? And are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing fruit for Christ? And if you say, you know, Father Sebastian, Father Hezekiah, I don't know that I am then this time is given to us in the church in order to ask this question and to open ourselves up to a restoration of the image and likeness that was given to us in baptism. The feast of the nativity is the feast, uh, is the great mystery of God's incarnation, not only something that happened 2,000 years ago, but the question of his incarnation here today in my life? Have I become the flesh and bones, if you will, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, bearing fruit to eternal life? Let's conclude with the Traparian of the, of the maternity of St. Anne, such a beautiful text given to us on this feast day. Today the bonds of barrenness are loosed. God has heard the prayers of Joachim and Anne. He has promised against all hope the birth of the maiden of God from whom the infinite himself is to be born as a man. He who had ordered the angel to cry out to her, Hail, O woman full of grace. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.